Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Hi there, it's Lani and today I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Aston Morney from the Centre for Molecular and Medical Research at Deakin University. Catherine is a world-leading diabetes researcher and another amazing ambassador for young women in science. Her interest in diabetes was inspired by her grandmother that lived with the disease for over 30 years. After growing up in Geelong, she studied at Melbourne University and then spent five years at the University of Washington, undertaking postdoctoral research in one of the most prominent diabetes laboratories in the world. She now leads her own team of four researchers trying a radical new approach to diabetes research by testing drugs that have already been approved for use in humans for treating other conditions. Catherine is a dynamic thinker and I learned so much from our chat about diabetes, a disease that most of us will have some experience of in our lifetime. Let's do it. Change One Thing with Dr. Catherine Aston Morney. So Catherine, you are at the Centre for Molecular and Medical Research and have been described as being a a fantastic uh, ambassador for young women in science. Tell us about your story and what it took to get here. Yeah, so I grew I grew up in Geelong, and I've always been interested in science, in mm-hmm. biology, because it always fascinated me. And the more you learn about it, the more interesting it becomes. Um, but I was actually uh, when it got to the end of school, tossing up between a career in music and a career in science. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. What sort of music? Uh, so I actually play the oboe, um, among other instruments. <laughs> <laughs> the oboe is kind of like a clarinet. Do you um, see my face and I'm like yeah. thinking, I'm like, what's the oboe? Oh, my God, I don't know what the oboe yeah. is. <laughs> so it's an orchestral instrument, so I play in orchestras. And uh, so I was thinking about following that up as a career, but then I figured that you can do music as a hobby and you can't do mm. science as a hobby. So I would follow a career in science and keep doing music as a hobby, which is what I do now. Beautiful. Well, you're a a woman of many talents. Uh, And did that lead you to, did you study here in uh, in Geelong? So I studied at Melbourne University. Mm -hmm. I did a science degree and then I stayed on and did an honours year in research and then my PhD in uh, medical research at the Melbourne, at the University of Melbourne, but based at the Austin Hospital. So, Kat, you're quite the ambassador for women in science. Um, For any of our young listeners out there who might want to follow suit or thinking about what advice you'd give yourself as a youngster um, going down this path, what would that be in terms of, you know, we've got this this new thing that we all talk about called STEM. Mm -hmm. What would that be? Yeah, so STEM, which is science, technology, engineering and mathematics, is a big push for having girls go down the pathway of STEM because they're traditionally male-dominated fields. Yes. And so there's a, um, yeah, a lot of encouragement for young girls to sort of start thinking, well, this is something I can do rather than that's something for men to do. And so I guess that, you know, young people, girls who are interested in that kind of thing, um, especially throughout high school, 
if you're interested in that, um, it's definitely a career opportunity there. Mm. It's something you do need to be really passionate about doing. You don't need to, you know, just choose a pathway because you have high marks or things like that. You want to choose something that you're going to be really happy and passionate about mm. doing, especially a research career. It's it's not easy. It's incredibly fulfilling, but you do need to be passionate about what you're doing because there's a lot of setbacks along the way for every yes. experiment that works. We have nine that don't work. Um, so I think it's all about what sort of passion you have. Um I was lucky that for high school I went to Matthew Flinders in Geelong and it's just, of course, a girls' school and we had a very good science program, had some great teachers. So I was really pushed to go along that pathway and did well at it and decided, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and study science, even though some people were saying, well, maybe you should consider medicine because you got high marks. Mm. I think they underestimated how hard it is to get into medicine and I probably couldn't have. <laughs> but I was interested in science. I really liked it. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, so there is lots of different things you do and I teach uh, undergraduate students, um, uh, medic- I teach medicine students and I teach undergraduate biology students and so many people are really stuck on getting into medicine as mm. the only thing to do but medical research is just, it's broad in all the things you can do, you can, a whole lot of different disciplines, different disease states It's just something that I think is really fascinating that you can do. So Mm. if you go ahead and study any any kind of science degree, you're going to get exposed to the different fields of biology, biochemistry, different things like that, different diseases. You might find genetics is fascinating and go ahead with that. Um, But there's, yeah, lots of opportunities. And what sort of opportunities has your career given you as such? Like what's life like you as a researcher? So I think life as a researcher is actually really great. Um, It's really flexible, which is wonderful. I've got lots of colleagues that have young children and they're able to work from home if they need Mm. to, you know, leave early, um, come in late to do the school drop-off. But it's got more opportunities. So because it's so international, it's really encouraged that people go overseas and work for a while. So I had the opportunity to move to Seattle and work there for five years, which was fantastic. I got to do lots of travel while I was there. Even now I'm going to conferences in different countries around Australia. And so I really do get a lot of opportunities to do that. I think I've been back to the US or Canada every year since I've started my job at Deakin and that's been about eight years now. Uh, so the travel is really, really wonderful and you just get to do a job that is fun with other people who are passionate and energetic about what they do and it's, it is really just fun going to work every day. You look forward to it. Um, there's, of course, aspects that kind of suck but <laughs> it's and it's a really enjoyable enjoyable job. You get to be creative and um do something that's really worthwhile doing. Mm. And you're passionate about sharing science with the community and you're on the organising committee for the first Pint of Science events uh, happening here in Geelong this year. They're actually in a couple of weeks' time, I think. Um, You're actually emceeing all three events. Can you tell us about these? Yeah, so this is actually a really um, great organisation that's I'm not actually sure what country it started in, but it's worldwide now. And the aim is to actually uh, communicate cool science that's happening in the local areas with the general public. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do this over a beer because 
you know, over a beer is the best <laughs> way to discuss most things and science is no exception. Uh, so we ha- have this event at Geelong this year held at Little Creatures and we'll, we've got researchers from Deakin University, from CSIRO here in Geelong and talking about the amazing research they do from, you know, studying bacteria and how that can help our health to 3D printing a house or a solar car um, and we've got someone talking about how they're developing a, a drug treatment, basically a pill that can mimic the effects of exercise as well. Ooh, so, that's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that. Watch this space. Mm-hmm. I, I actually want to know what that pill is. Yeah. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> you've been described as a world leading diabetes researcher and you've spent time in some of the most prominent diabetes laboratories in the world. Firstly, why diabetes? What attracted you to delve so far into this particular disease? Mm -hmm. So diabetes I've been interested in since I was a child. My grandmother was diagnosed with diabetes uh, when I was quite young. And so I was always interested in it as a disease. Mm. And the reason I followed it up, I was actually meant to be studying for my third year exams. And while procrastinating, looked through my drawer and found a a booklet of research projects that had been sent out to us and I'd never looked at. Started flicking through it and went, oh, diabetes projects, I'm interested in that. And um, so I went along and interviewed for a position and was lucky enough to get it. And with a fantastic lab at at, um, Melbourne University and the Royal Melbourne Hospital, um, who were just doing, were doing then amazing research and still going now. And that sort of set me along my career. Yeah. And in short, what is diabetes and what are the symptoms? Okay. So diabetes occurs when we have blood sugar levels that are too high. And it can occur for a variety of reasons, but mainly because we don't have enough of the hormone insulin that the body releases, which results in lowering blood glucose levels. So when we don't have enough of this, our blood glucose levels get too high. Mm. This can cause a lot of damage, um, but it does take a long time for that damage to happen. So you don't actually feel sick when you've got high blood sugar levels. So when you have diabetes, it doesn't actually make you feel sick. So a lot of people don't even know they have it Mm. and remain undiagnosed. It's not until you sort of start developing a few complications later that you might start to get diagnosed. So people have issues with their eyes, so maybe an optometrist will notice Mm. some changes happening. Um, Really, the only symptom that you might notice is an increased thirst and urination, and that's your body's way of trying to rid itself of that excess glucose in the blood. Okay. And there is two types of diabetes Mm -hmm. that we hear of. Is is there only two types um, or is there more types? What are these types of diabetes? So there's the two key types that most people talk of. Um, Type one, which is the one that usually happens in childhood. Mm. And this is caused by the body destroying the cells that produce the insulin. So these uh, children, when they're diagnosed, have no insulin at all and their blood glucose levels get extremely high to the point where they'll become really uh, dehydrated and they'll end up presenting to hospital. And for them, they have to take insulin injections Mm. to manage the disease. Uh, Type 2 diabetes is the one that we probably hear more about because it's about 90% of people with diabetes have this form. And that's the one that usually presents in adulthood. Um, although we're seeing it more often in children, which is a bit concerning. Mm. Um, And that one's the one that can be managed with sort of lifestyle modifications and just taking some tablets. But of course, it needs to be monitored 
for the whole um, for your whole life. And then the other form that is there as a third form is gestational diabetes, which is when you get diabetes when you're pregnant. Yes, and, and this would is usually very... remit after you've given birth. Yeah, yeah, and it is quite common, isn't it, to get yeah. that whilst you're pregnant? Yeah, it is quite common. I think it's about one in seven um, women that will get diabetes when they're pregnant and um, they end up being at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later on as well. Okay, and why do you develop just that um, type of diabetes when you're pregnant? Like why yeah. is that? Uh, so when you're pregnant, um, it actually puts strain on your body. Of course, you're growing a whole other human <laughs> being and it actually requ- you need more insulin in order to keep your blood glucose levels normal. So if okay. you're someone who's got a bit of a genetic um, underlying genetic cause for diabetes, which means you're not able to upregulate the production of insulin enough, you might get gestational diabetes. Okay. And what would be the signs of that? Obviously, you're in contact with your doctor a lot while you're pregnant, but just mm. um, for anyone out there listening that might be pregnant and might be having some of these symptoms, what would they sort of be? Again, maybe just the increased thirst and urination, but mm-hmm. I imagine there's lots of things going <laughs> on with pregnancy, yeah. <laughs> making it difficult to pinpoint. Uh, but with any care um, by whether it's a regular doctor, whether it's a specialist for pregnancy, they'll do a um, glucose tolerance test. So they'll make you drink this horrible sugary drink <laughs> and measure your blood levels um, over a couple of hours. And they do this routinely to screen people. And we don't have anything to sort of aid that yet or stop people developing that whilst they're pregnant? No, no, we don't at the moment. Okay. Um, Also, what is the role of high sugar diets and diets in general when it comes to diabetes? Yeah. So there's a lot of... um, a lot of press out there about lifestyle and developing diabetes, and it definitely contributes to diabetes with increased body weight. We're seeing more and mm. more people becoming overweight in Australia and many other countries, and this is contributing to sort of increases in the amount of people getting diabetes. And um, yeah, so following a more strict diet, exercising more can lower your risk of getting mm. diabetes, but it's not the only thing involved. You do have to have some sort of genetic propensity to get diabetes. So you could have a terrible diet, get really <laughs> overweight all your life and never develop diabetes, mm. or you could be someone who's incredibly fit and active and a lean body weight and will develop diabetes because they have a high amount of genetics that's contributing mm. to that. So it's really different from person to person. But um, if we newly diagnose diabetics, so if you first get diabetes, if you do make some good lifestyle changes, you can actually sort of reduce your blood glucose levels so you're technically not diabetic anymore, um, at least for a little while. So it can play a big role. Mm, Absolutely. And you do hear Mm. a lot about that. Do you you think we need more education and laws around uh, sugar and what's like how much sugar they're putting into our food and what we're eating. Do you think we need more education around that? Yeah, we probably do. Uh, I think the amount of sugar and things like that in our food and drinks is probably concerning not just for diabetes, but <laughs> lots of other diseases as well, Correct. you know, linked with, you know, cancer. And there's so many, so many links that are probably happening from our diet to different disease states that we just don't understand yet either. Mm. But I think pretty much all the research shows us that if you go through a very sort of natural diet, it's going to be better for you than a processed diet. So mm. I think... Um, more people can stick to a healthy diet, less processed foods, less sugar. We know it's going to be beneficial. 
This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. Kat, if you could change one thing about the issue of diabetes now to ensure the number of people getting it in the future is going down, what would what would that be? So I think what we really do need is a way to prevent diabetes, mm-hmm. not just treat it. Um, we don't have a cure. We have ways to sort of manage the disease at the moment. And we're looking at a lot of drugs that can help with that. But the real kind of um, golden bullet, if we could get the research to work, is having a way that we can prevent people from becoming diabetic in the first place. Mm. And I think that's just going to be so important because at the moment we have about 280 people a day in Australia getting diabetes and that number is only going to increase over time. So at some point we're just going to have so many people with diabetes that if we don't do something to actually change it, it'll be really overwhelming to the healthcare system trying to treat everybody with this disease. So I think that prevention, if we can achieve that, would be the ultimate goal. Wow. And I've also read that by 2031, speaking of the future and diabetes, and and you're talking about the overwhelming sort of health for the healthcare system, uh, by 2031, 3.3 million Australians are predicted to have type 2 Mm -hmm. diabetes. And it's sort of described as being the silent uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I guess what you're saying is exactly what we can do to help prevent this from from happening. Mm, yeah, and that would be great. And I think it's going to require more than just lifestyle interventions, which can reduce the risk, but we really need to go further. So if we can identify the people who are most at risk of developing diabetes and have some sort of way of um, perhaps a pharmaceutical treatment that can um, prevent them from declining to the point of diabetes, uh, that would be a great way to go as well. Mm. And you're leading a team of four other researchers at Deakin and you're looking at old drugs in a bid to improve current treatments, uh, particularly a radical new approach of using drugs for other conditions on diabetes and seeing how they affect it. So are you you just all waking up and going, oh, let's just pick a disease today (laughs) and see how these drugs work on diabetes? Well, look, some of the <laughs> some diseases have a lot in common, so you could try that. Um, really what my research is based around is the fact that the causes of diabetes, like we've got a lot of research and we do understand quite a bit of what's going on, but it's just so incredibly complex that there's still mm. so much we don't understand. And trying to find a drug that can really fix that problem when we don't have a complete picture of all the things that are going wrong is very difficult. And that's why these drugs, you know, they have a small impact, but they're really Mm. not fixing the whole problem. So instead, what we're trying to do is find a drug that does what we want it to do, rather than trying to design a drug to target some sort of specific aspect of diabetes. So the way we're doing it is we've developed a new tool which gives us a readout as to whether the drugs are affecting Mm. the body in the way we want them to. So we screen thousands of drugs with this tool and we find those that are having the biggest impact. So the idea is it's um, looking for something that is 
got a high likelihood of working the way we want it to, but we don't need to understand how it's doing that. Mm. And having, you know, drugs that are already out there means that we have the drugs that we can screen. It also means by screening drugs that are, um, you know, safe, they've been FDA approved, they're, you know, cheap to synthesise, perhaps they're generic, means that we don't need to go through the whole safety testing Mm. again. And that's a very big, you know, a a large component of why it takes so long for drugs to get to market Mm. is all that safety testing. So if we've got something that's already approved for use, we can get to treating patients much quicker than if we have to develop something from scratch. So that's kind of the approach that we're taking. It has worked for other diseases. Um, we've had a success story out of our lab already, um, repurposing a drug that was used for the treatment of glaucoma, looking at the eyes, and it turns out that it actually has some effects for diabetes as well. Uh, so we've got our fingers crossed that we'll find <laughs> something that'll be you know, really effective um, and we can give it to people at a very low cost. Wow. And this is um, world-leading research. So this this isn't being done uh, for diabetes as such anywhere else in the world. It's being done for some other diseases, but you're actually leading this, uh, this particular approach for diabetes um, around the world here. It's it's great. We hope we're doing, no one else is doing it. We haven't heard of anyone else doing it. Mm. No, my colleague Ken Walder and I work together on this and, um, yeah, we've tried it for a couple of different aspects of diabetes and hope we're getting some nice results. So hopefully we might get some get a candidate drug that we can start testing you know, not too far future. Yeah. Do you, So do you know any other diseases this approach has worked for? Uh, so for cancer. Okay. Um, so the cancer field, uh, they've used a very similar approach. In fact, that's where we got the idea for this approach from. And they've had a f- quite a few success stories of finding drugs used for other diseases that can be effective on different cancers. Mm. And so, yeah, if it works there, we hope it works in diabetes as well. Absolutely. And uh, Kat, you spent a little bit of time in India this mm-hmm. year. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I went to India this year um, because Deacon actually has quite a large presence in India and we have a lot of uh, collaborations and students that are based in India doing their PhDs there, but they're enrolled through Deakin. Mm-hmm. So we have the Deakin India Research Institute so I've got a PhD student over there that um, my collaborator, who's a um, ex, you know world class researcher in his own right, um, in India, I work with him. We've got a shared student who's doing her PhD project there. It's actually India is a really interesting place, especially for diabetes, because they've got one of the highest rates of diabetes in the world, mm, wow. and they also have a lot more people. So I went to um, Delhi. And in Delhi, they have more people living there than we have people in Australia. And <laughs> and the state, by the same token, uh, they have more people with diabetes in India than we have in Australia in total. Okay. So it's a huge problem over there, and which means they have a, a lot more people to look at, a lot more um, samples to use for research and, um, yeah, just different points of view. And some great research going on there as well. So it's great to have those collaborations. And do you think um, in terms of India, are they sort of more genetically predisposed to getting diabetes or is it their lifestyle over there that's Mm. contributing? What do you think that is? 
I think it's probably both. I think mm. definitely, well, the point, my point of view and that of my colleague um, <laughs> in India, we both think that there's a very high genetic component um, in the Indian population. Uh, but the change from a more traditional diet uh, has played an influence. For instance, they used to have unprocessed rice. They um, always ate a lot of rice, as they do now. It's a staple in the diet, but now it's white rice that's processed, mm. which has a lower nutritional value. It induces higher blood sugar levels. So he's actually looking at different rice products to go back to the, the healthier version of rice to make a difference. But it's the sort of westernization of the diet that has sort of brought out more diabetes, but they definitely have a much higher genetic mm. component as well. Are there any other countries that you're seeing really high rates of diabetes? Like is Australia mm. is obviously up there as well. Mm. I Look, it's going up in most countries. We find mm. a lot of the indigenous populations of countries uh, have high rates. So the Australian... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population does have high rates of diabetes as well, which is, again, to do with a, a higher genetics, not anything that they're doing to cause higher rates of diabetes, but just the genes that they've inherited. And we see that with the uh, American Indian population um, mm. and really just every country you look at, they're going to be talking about their increasing rates of diabetes. So it is a worldwide phenomenon that's not just... Um, developed countries and, you know, underdeveloped countries are also, or developing countries are having higher rates as well. Mm. And what can we do for listeners at home to avoid getting diabetes? Should we go out and have some sort of test? Should we be changing things about our, our lifestyle? What should we be doing? Yeah. Look, <laughs> I think for, for diabetes, as with a lot of other diseases, better diet, increased physical activity is going to do great things for so many different things. And a lot of these diseases are, are interlinked. It's associated with your mental health, your physical mm. health, all these different things. So if you can eat, eat better, at least sometimes, get a bit more exercise, that makes a big difference. The other thing is, is yeah, you go, go to your doctor and get screened. I think mm. A year or so ago, a couple of years ago, um, Medicare now covers having this blood test every year. So you can go to your doctor and you can have a free blood test that will tell you whether or not you've got diabetes. Mm. Um, so that's a great thing to do and just get your blood glucose checked, you know, every year. And if it starts creeping up, you know, you can start to do some things to hopefully improve your lifestyle and delay Try getting that disease. Mm. Mm. So particularly if you've got like a parent or even a grandparent that's had diabetes. Yep. A family history is sort of the biggest risk factor for you developing diabetes. Uh, but saying that, you find it hard to find anyone who doesn't have a family history of diabetes mm. these days. I think even talking to people this morning, everyone was saying, yeah, my grandmother had that. Yeah, my grandmother too. And Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, a first degree relative, if you've got a parent, especially with diabetes, you've got a much higher risk of developing mm. diabetes yourself. And I think I was someone saying to you before the show as well, mm. myself, I was saying my grandma had develop type 2 diabetes and yeah it's just so you know you you speak to anyone and they you know sort of have the same story there's someone along the line that that has developed it because it is just so prevalent and we really need to be doing things now um, like the amazing research that you're doing to try and change you know that um, it being so prevalent in the future. Cat. Uh, little bit off topic now, but what do you like to do in your spare time? 
<laughs> in my spare time. Um, <laughs> You're like, what's that? <laughs> I, I, do, I do a lot of work. Um, in my spare time, I'm involved in music um, in Geelong. So I play for Orchestra Geelong and I'm on the committee for that. So we prepare for, we rehearse weekly, we prepare for concerts and um, I do a few other, I do some, it's spare time, but it's work, but I occasionally do some jobs um, playing for small orchestras as well on weekends, which is just something different to do, turn my mind off for a mm. while. Um, and I spend a lot of time, I'm a very proud auntie of a niece <laughs> and three nephews, so I spend a lot of time with them, watch soccer games, that kind of thing. And my downtime is watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And yep. you really do need that time where you switch your your mind off, especially when you're doing this kind of research. Do you find that sometimes your best ideas come to you when you are sort of just enjoying yourself and playing music or, you know, switching your mind off? I'd like to say yes. <laughs> but Watching Netflix? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Actually, the best ideas have come by seeing what other people are doing for the research, mm. not copying their research, but finding clues from different people and working with them. For instance, um, knowing what a few other people do at Deakin and seeing the research, their research, I've looked at it and said, I think that could be really useful in some of the research I'm doing and I've discussed it with them and we're collaborating on projects together. So taking people who are experts in um, sort of nanomedicine or... Um, working with people who work more with technologies and applying that to the kind of research I'm doing with different drugs um, to look at a new way of treating diabetes, I think is something that's really novel and really exciting. Um, and it just sort of comes from putting people from those different areas together. And that's what mm. Deacon tries to do a lot of getting researchers from different schools, different departments, different universities to get to know each other's research and those collaborations between different areas mm. can really produce something really exciting and new. Put all the smart people in one room. Yep. That's the way. Hopefully. Kat, is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you'd like our listeners to know about diabetes or your research? Probably just that we do have some fantastic research happening in Geelong at Deakin and throughout Australia. We have mm. fantastic world-class research and that's actually really impressive considering what a small country we are in comparison to some of the other big players like the US. Um, but research is not an easy career to do and research funding is very difficult to get. And so it, I just think it's a, it's amazing what lots of our researchers do achieve with the limited funding available mm. and, um, yeah, it's just, you know, two big thumbs up for Australia really <laughs> that we can actually manage that. Yeah. yeah, and we do have some of the best researchers in the world and we are very lucky here. Our education system is is fantastic and it really allows those, um, those people to thrive and go on and do incredible things such as what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for sharing all of that with us. Uh, Kat, I've got a fast few questions for <laughs> you now that we're going to pump out and I just want the first thing that comes to you to your head. Sure. Um, are you ready? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've been given on your path to success? Best piece of advice came from my PhD supervisor who says you need to get out there and talk to people, let them know who you are. And that's how you can succeed in this career. And that's definitely, you know, set me up well for my career. 
Beautiful. Get out amongst it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is time really our most precious, unrenewable resource and why? Yeah, it really is. Time goes incredibly quickly. Research is a field that happens slowly. It takes us a long time to develop things. It takes a lot of money, a lot of people doing it. And we really are in a a sort of a race. Can we get enough new treatments for diabetes before we end up with too many people with diabetes, Mm. Um, as well as all the other issues, people trying to do climate research, you know, trying to do something to fix climate problems before they're too far gone. So exactly. And yeah, I can't, I can't believe that I've been studying diabetes for, you know, 20 years now and it feels <laughs> like it's been about three. <laughs> and I was just saying to you before the show, you look so young, which you actually do. Uh, if, for those listening out there, Kat, uh, you, you know, you sort of look like you could still be at uni, like in your yeah. first year. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, if you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure our Earth's future, what would it be? Just one book. There's actually one book that I, I quite enjoyed about how to um, work with people and I guess it's applicable for every career and it's called mm. The Subtle Art of Not Giving Hopefully I can say that on the podcast. <laughs> I've um, heard of that. Yes. Yes. And it's actually a, it's a really interesting read and it's got some great things in there and, you know, about not getting caught up with all the other stuff going on and just, you know, get getting on with things. And I, yes. I felt that, that was – I only read it sort of uh, – a year or so ago on the recommendation of one of our PhD students, actually, um, <laughs> but wish I had read it a lot earlier. <laughs> Amazing. And we will link to that in our show notes. And I've, I've definitely got that on my to read list. Yep. Uh, that's for sure. It, it is, it's quite a popular book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do hear um, about that book a little bit and I've heard it's very good. So putting it <laughs> on the read list. <laughs> uh, Kat, if your life was a movie or a TV show, uh, what would it be called and who would star in it? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have an answer for, <laughs> for this one, actually. I was trying to think of, you know, the diabetes problem, the growing problem and thinking mm-hmm. if it was a, a movie, it'd be something like one of the apocalyptic end of the world kind of things that sort of the day after tomorrow, the day after diabetes or the walking diabetics or something like that, <laughs> where everyone's just getting diabetes and, you know, raiding <laughs> places for medications and that kind of thing. So hopefully we don't get to that Sort of like a bit of a zombie type. Yeah. Yeah. Get diabetes, turn into a zombie. (laughs) (laughs) Not that diabetes does that to you, but yeah. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, I have learnt so much today. Thank you so much for sharing. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Kat, on Change One Thing. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.